All right, we're going to get right started into our second presentation. It's a quarter to eight. I hope to have us finish by uh, half past eight, so this will be a, a short uh, presentation, uh, but a powerful one. We're going to look at um, a prophetic book in the Old Testament, and that is the book of Daniel. It's the same name that I have. Um, for those that have studied a little bit of Bible prophecy, you will know that there are two books in particular that deal with Bible prophecy. Um, and specifically apocalyptic prophecy, prophecy that deals with the times in which we are living and the near future. Uh, and that's the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and it's the book of Revelation in the New Testament, the last book of the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not other books that contain prophecy. As a matter of fact, there's lots of books that contain prophecy. But when you're specifically looking at apocalyptic prophecy or last day prophecy, uh, you will find yourself often in those two books, the books of Daniel and Revelation. And we will be studying both of those books in the course of this time uh, together, this seminar. And there's a prophecy in the book of Daniel that really is like a foundation. A what, everyone? A foundation that we can build on when we come to other prophecies. We're going to look at some powerful prophecies tomorrow, Sunday, next weekend. And they're kind of going to build on this one. So I'm very happy you're here. Uh, this is found in Daniel chapter 2. Now, um, as we get into our message this evening, um, I just want to see if this clicker is working. Oh, I think it's... Okay. Uh, there, I think it's going to work now. It just... Let's see. Okay, try to, try to pull it out and put it in again. Maybe it'll work. The... Uh, Okay, as that's, as that's get, getting going, um, I'm going to show you a couple of slides with some, just a couple of references to um, prophecies that have already happened in the life of Jesus in his first coming, and then we'll look at this amazing prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, which points us to the second coming of Christ. Um, what I find to be true is that there are a lot of Christians that are talk about the first coming of Jesus that happened 2,000 years ago, and that is central to the Christian faith. There are not a lot of Christians, though, or there are getting less and less Christians, I can put it that way, that actually talk about the second coming of Christ. And the Bible has a lot to say about the second coming of Christ. And um, uh, yes, it is good news that he came. Yes, it is important news that he came. Uh, but it's also an incredible news that he's coming again. Amen? And so we'll be looking at a prophecy that points to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, as Samuel is just figuring that out for a moment, let's just have a short word of prayer again that God's Spirit will be with us this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And I pray that as we study it together, that you will open our hearts, open our minds, allow us to see the beauty of prophecy and help us to understand the times we are living in and that which is soon to happen in this world so that we can be prepared for the great events that are before us. So guide us now, I pray, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Yep, thank you very much. All right, here we go. Um, we're going to specifically focus during this seminar, during this series, on prophecy, which is the third point here. Um, there, are a number of, um, there are a number of claims that we could look at why the Bible is actually authentic, why we can trust it, why it's trustworthy. Uh, we could look at the historicity, the evidence of history. Um, you know, other places I go, sometimes I do a whole lecture on archaeology. 
showing uh, discoveries that have been made that are external discoveries that you can compare with biblical stories and you see this beautiful harmony. Now, we're not going to do that in this series. If you would be interested in that, um, I could give you some resources or some links that you can go to to look, watch these presentations online. But tonight we're going to spend, and the majority of our time during the series, we will spend actually on prophecy. Um, we could have also talked about the internal consistency, how all the different books of the Bible really harmonize together. But um, one of the things that led me to become a full-on follower of Jesus that led me to basically uh, give up my studies in a certain direction and decide to become a preacher of the word uh, is prophecy. So it's something that is very close to my heart. I like to think of prophecy as the signature of God. It's like, you know, something happens and God puts a signature under it and he knew it all along that it was going to happen. Amen? He kind of confirms the events of, of life, the events of world's history. Now, there are a lot of prophecies that point to the first coming of Jesus. I just put a couple of references up here on the screen uh, regarding where Jesus would be born. You can read about that in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, that he would be born in Bethlehem, which took place. The fulfillment, Matthew 2 verse 1. Um, regarding the circumstances of his birth, in Isaiah 7, remember, a virgin would conceive, Mary. Um, then also from which tribe he would come. He would come from the tribe of Judah. Now, there are lots of prophecies here pointing to the first coming of Christ. Some people will say, you know what, Jesus, maybe he just wanted to be the Messiah, and so he looked at the prophecies in the Old Testament, and he just tried to fulfill them. Now, that could maybe work to a certain extent, but it wouldn't really work because you have no control as to where you were born, right? You have no control as to from which, you know, what family you end up in. There are certain things that you can say, okay, I read that prophecy, I'm going to try to fulfill that, but there are lots of prophecies in the Old Testament that are beyond the control of any human being, and yet they were perfectly fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Regarding, again, his family, he would come from the, from, uh, the um, he would be the son of David through the lineage of David. Uh, the very time uh, that he would come on to um, into this world. Amazing prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Um, also regarding his message, his ministry, Isaiah 61, um, about his entry into Jerusalem, his betrayal, and the very price that was paid for his betrayal. These are all prophecies in the Old Testament, and you find the fulfillment in the New Testament. Uh, regarding how, um, his, how the, the final scenes of his life unfolded, that he was mocked, he was spit upon, he was crucified with criminals, um, his bones were unbroken, uh, he resurrected, and the very time of his death. All these things you find, these are just references here, these are things that are prophesied in the Old Testament, and we find the fulfillment in the New Testament. There was a man by the name of Peter Stoner, and he had a PhD in mathematics, astronomy, and engineering, and he wrote a book called Science Speaks. And what he did was the following. This is quite fascinating. He, he made a mathematical calculation of what the probability is of 48 of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilling in one man. Now, there are more than 48 prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the figure, the Messiah figure. There are actually, uh, there's estimated several hundreds. But... Peter Stoner just took 48 of the several hundred prophecies and he said, what is the probability of these 48 fulfilling in one man? And so he did all his calculations and he ended up with this figure, 10 to the 100, uh, 157th power. That looks like this. Let's see. 
I'm not going to ask you to pronounce that number. But uh, that is, in other words, it is extremely unlikely for all those prophecies to be fulfilled in one person. It is impossible. And because of all these prophecies, we can be sure that Jesus is the very one he claimed to be. These prophecies are absolutely astounding. Now, this is concerning the first coming of Christ. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a prophecy that points to the second coming of Christ. Part of this prophecy is what we could call historic. In other words, it has already happened. But part of this prophecy is also apocalyptic, or it points to the future. And the historic part of the prophecy basically confirms the truthfulness and the authenticity of the uh, predictions that are still in the future. It's like God has already signed many of these prophecies. They've already happened. And so we can be sure that the last part is going to happen. Now, this prophecy um, was given in ancient Babylon. Um, It was given between 500 and 600 years before Christ, or 500, 600 BC, before Christ. Now, what happened was Babylon was the the great uh, kingdom, the great nation uh, of that time, and they had invaded Judah and they had destroyed Jerusalem, and they had taken captive many of the Jews and taken them back to Babylon. And amongst the captives, there was a young man by the name of Daniel, and he wrote the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and he wrote it while he was a captive in Babylon, okay? Now, interesting, uh, as you come to the second chapter of the book of Daniel, Um, we read that the king of Babylon, which was a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. And in this this dream, he dreamt um, of something that we're going to look at in a moment, but he couldn't remember it really when he woke up. And so he knew he had dreamt something significant, but he couldn't really remember the details of that dream. And the Bible tells us that he goes and he calls together all his wise men and all his counselors. And among that number is also Daniel because Daniel is, um, had, was a captive, but he had been selected and trained in the court of the king. And so he was one of those wise men. Now, um, as, he, um, as, as, as all these wise men are gathered together, Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, tell me what I dreamt and tell me the interpretation of this dream. They are not able to do that, and so what happens is he passes a death degree. And, you know, when you read the book of Daniel, you'll find out a little bit about this King Nebuchadnezzar. He's quite a figure. And uh, he becomes enraged. He says, oh, I have you on my payroll, and you're not even able to tell me what I dreamt, what what I dreamed. And so he passes a death degree and says, okay, if that's the case, then you're going to lose your life if you can't come with the dream and its interpretation. Now, the Bible tells us that Daniel goes and he prays, and that God reveals the matter to him, and he goes before the king and reveals this amazing dream. Now, just think about this for a moment. We are living in 2014. What is it? The 16th? Yeah, 17th? 17th of January 2014. And here we are, interested in a dream that an ancient king of Babylon had between five and 600 years before Christ. And yet this dream is fascinating. Because what it does is it, uh, is it reveals a prophecy, as we're going to uh, see in a bit. Now, it is interesting that the book of Daniel is really a book for you and for me. You might think, well, what does is, what is that story of a captive in Babylon have to do with me today? 
the book of Daniel has 12 chapters, and in the 12th chapter, the last chapter of the book, and verse 4, the Bible says the following, and this is an angel speaking to, to Daniel the prophet and says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book until the time of the what? Until the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So the message that Daniel receives is this book that you just read, that you just wrote, you know, seal it, shut it up. It's not for now, but in the time of the end, it's going to speak. It's going to, it's going to be un, un, you know, unlocked, unleashed. The message is going to go forth. You know, are we living at that time of the end? Well, we could ask the question, are many running to and fro and is knowledge increasing? Well, I think so. You know, just the very fact that, you know, you can get on a plane and, you know, in a number of hours, in a matter of hours, you can be, you know, in a total different place. Just, just think about that. You know, you look, at the, uh, you look at Earth's history and you just look at the last hundred years. It is incredible how knowledge has literally exploded. And, and, and knowledge is just a finger click away, Right? You know, we all have this technology today, and many are running to and fro, and knowledge has increased. But not only has scientific knowledge increased, but also biblical knowledge. We can have access to these amazing prophecies in the book of Daniel. Now, the king had a dream. And in that dream, what he saw was an image. And you see a little picture of it here on the screen. He dreamt of this image that was like a, a, a metallic man, a man made of different metals, and his head was made of gold, his chest and arms of silver, his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, and his feet, the Bible says, were made of iron and clay. Now, you can imagine, if, if that's what you dreamt, you would wonder, you would want to know what's the interpretation, what's the meaning of that. Daniel the prophet comes before the king and gives us the interpretation or the meaning of this dream. Now take notice, we're going to pick it up here in Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. And Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Listen to these words, You are this head of gold. So, as Daniel is de describing the dream, you can just imagine, you know, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he's on the tip of his throne. He's like, yes, that's exactly what I dreamt. Yes, I saw this, I saw this image, this man, and yes, he had a head of gold, and yes, he had a, uh, his, his chest and arms were made of silver and, and thighs of brass and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. That's what I saw. Now, what does it mean? And Daniel says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, you, your kingdom, represents the head of gold. Now, um, the head of gold, or Babylon, which Nebuchadnezzar ruled over, reigned over, um, ruled from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. Now, what we're going to discover as we look at this prophetic dream is that every metal of this image represents a different kingdom. A different what, everyone? Kingdom. Beginning with Babylon, but bringing us through the corridors of time to the very day and age in which you and I are living. This is fascinating, beyond fascinating. I don't have a way of, of, of even, you know, describing this. This is amazing, as you're going to discover in just a bit, how accurate and, um, this prophecy actually is as we, as we uh, look at it together. So we're in Babylon. 
You know, we're, we're back in Babylon. And, and Daniel is, is facing this, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, okay, you dreamt this dream, this metallic man, this image, the head of gold is representing you. It's representing Babylon. Now, Babylon, you see a picture here on the screen of the, uh, the, the, ray, the, 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 the uh, geographic area where, where Babylon ruled at that time. Uh, just to give you a little bit of an insight into what Babylon, what kind of city it was, uh, the capital of the Babylonian Empire was also the city of Babylon. Um, it was 10 miles around. Just compare that with Rome being 6 miles and Athens being 4 miles. So that gives you an idea that it was a very large city. Uh, the temple of Marduk, which was one of the gods that the Babylonians worshipped, uh, was 300 feet high and outside it was covered with blue glazed tile. Inside it was overlaid with gold. Um, it had in the temple, they had an altar and throne which were made of eight and a half tons of solid gold. No wonder that in the dream, Babylon is depicted as the golden head. In another prophecy in scripture, it is actually referred to as the golden city. This is Babylon, lots of gold. Um, actually, archaeologists have found a tablet that they believe could have even be the very writings of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And on that tablet, it says, may Babylon last forever. Now, um, that's really what Nebuchadnezzar wanted and, and, and other kings in Babylon wanted. They thought that, ba that, that Babylon was so strong, so powerful, that it would never be conquered. You know, Babylon had... The city itself had walls that were so thick that you could race three chariots on top of them. They had a food supply of 20 years. They had a river running through the city, which was called the River Euphrates. And so they thought, you know, we are an unconquerable city. They thought that they would last forever. And yet the prophecy tells us a different thing. When Daniel was standing before Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you are the head of gold. But then he says, the next thing he says in verse 39 is, listen to what it says. But after you shall arise, what? Another kingdom inferior to yours. So Daniel the prophet predicts, as he's speaking through the inspiration of God, that according to the prophetic dream, that another kingdom would come. There would a kingdom would come that would conquer Babylon. Now, this seemed against all odds because Babylon was so strong, so powerful, so mighty. Well, the question is, how did that really happen? There was another prophet by the name of Isaiah that lived um, um, actually before Daniel. So this was a prophet prior to, uh, to, to Daniel, prior to this time. And he wrote the following concerning uh, Babylon in Isaiah 13, verse 19. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you're a little bit familiar with Scripture, you remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were utterly destroyed, never to be rebuilt. Now, how, what happened then to Babylon? Remember again the prophet Daniel says, But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours... In the book of Daniel chapter 5, you can basically read the story, and I'm going to just give you a short synopsis of the story here. The grandson of Nebuchadnezzar held this huge, great feast, and um, he is like, you know, called all his, all his, uh, his, his important men together, and uh, he's hol holding this riotous feast. They actually took the sacred um, vessels of the temple in Jerusalem, which they had 
taken with them when they destroyed Jerusalem, and they were using it in this, in this, in this riotous feast. And uh, all the while, when they are feasting, outside of the walls of Babylon, the Medes and the Persians had gathered because they wanted to conquer Babylon. Now, the Medes and the Persians, which actually comes from the from two kingdoms that were united, the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian army, had gathered to overthrow Babylon, but the Babylonians weren't afraid at all. They thought, you know, let the Medes and the Persians stay there. They can camp there if they want. They'll go home eventually because our walls are so thick. We have a food supply. We have the river Euphrates running through the city. We have no fear at all. Some historians even say that there's evidence that they threw food over the wall just to tease them. Like, here, you have something to eat, a lunch package. Go home. But they didn't go home. They stayed there. And um, the commander of the Medo-Persian army was a man by the name of Cyrus. And what Cyrus did was absolutely brilliant. During this night that they were feasting, and he must have caught wind of that, um, and there were less guards on the walls that night. And uh, what he did is the river Euphrates he subtracted it and he built this huge reservoir so that the water of the Euphrates flowed into that reservoir very quickly and that, that that same night, as they were feasting inside, he marched his men under the wall through the riverbed that had run dry. Now, normally, there was a bar's gate that went into the riverbed, but the Babylonians have left that open that night. And so in one night, Cyrus conquered Babylon. And in one night it fell. It was overthrown. This history, which you find recorded in Scripture, is also recorded. Let me just, I'll come back to this verse in a moment. It's also recorded on what is known as the Cyrus Cylinder, which is an archaeological object that has been discovered and which you can actually look at in the British Museum in London today. And on the Cyrus Cylinder, where they would often record events of history, you can actually read about the overthrow of the city of Babylon by Cyrus and the Medo-Persian army. Isn't that fascinating? That you have the story on a cylinder as evidence, and you have the story in Scripture. Okay? Now, Medo-Persia was the, was the nation that conquered Babylon. I'm just going to back up here to this verse because this is quite interesting. In Isaiah 45 and verse 1, Isaiah, which was a prophet that lived prior to Daniel, prior to all of these events, he even foretold that this would happen. And he says, he writes the following about Cyrus. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. And I will lose the loins of kings to open before him the two leavened gates, and the gates shall not be shut. That's exactly what happened. This was written more than a hundred years before it happened. Bible prophecy, my friends. Fascinating. Now, when, um, when Babylon fell, Medo-Persia took its place, and so we're now in the prophetic image in the uh, breast and arms of silver, okay, which are a representation of Medo-Persia, which ruled from 539 B.C. all the way to 331 B.C. Remember, we're counting back here. We're before Christ, and so we're going towards, we're going from 539 to 331. Medo-Persia, this is the empire ruling during that time. Here you see on the map the region of Medo-Persia. It was a larger kingdom than Babylon, and this was not the end, though. Because in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 39, listen to what it says. As Daniel, he's still standing before this great king, 
King Nebuchadnezzar, he said, you represent the, the head of gold, Babylon. After you shall come another kingdom which is inferior to yours. And then in verse 39, we read the following. Then another, a third kingdom of which, which metal? Bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. You see how Daniel is clearly connecting the material in the image to the different kingdoms? And so he's saying, you're the head of gold. After you shall come another kingdom. That's the chest and arms of silver. And then a third kingdom of bronze. And what we have to do is very simple, friends. We just have to take Bible prophecy and we have to take history and allow them to go hand in hand, right? Through the corridors of time. And so we have Babylon. Ba Babylon was conquered by Medo-Persia, which the Bible reveals and secular history or archaeology reveals. And then Medo-Persia was followed by, does anyone know which kingdom followed Medo-Persia? It was Greece, exactly. And um, Greece reigned from 331 B.C. to 168 B.C. Again, it's very interesting. And here you see the geographical um, extent of the Greek um, empire. It's very interesting because all these things kind of happened against the odds. Uh, you didn't think that Babylon could be conquered, but it happened. Medo-Persia was exceedingly strong. And there was no way that Greece, which was a relatively small army led by Alexander the Great, there was, there was no way that they could conquer the Medo-Persian army. But it happened. Um, Alexander the Great was a genius when it came to warfare. And um, you might remember the story. He was very young. He was in his late 20s when he led the Greek army against the Medes and the Persians. He actually met um, King Darius, which is, was at that time the, the king of the uh, Persians. He met him on the fields of Arbella, which was a, a place where a very decisive battle was fought between these two empires. And when they faced off, the, uh, the Medo-Persian army outnumbered the Greek army one by ten. So the Greeks were outnumbered, okay? Uh, and uh, yet Darius was a little bit unsure about this young Alexander the Great. And so he sends a messenger to the Greek army, uh, to Alexander the Great, and he says, why can't you be the king of the West and I'll be king of the East? Let's just, you know, you go home, I'll go home. Let's, let's not do this. <laughs> Alexander the Great, he sends a messenger back and he says, as there are no two suns in the sky, there is no place for you and I. And so they start this battle, they start fighting, and, and Alexander the Great, he uses his, his men and his, his horsemen in a, in, a, in a way that he actually surrounds the army of the Medes and Persians and utterly obliterates them. He destroys the army, and he continues to march, and in a period of eight years, now remember, this is not in cars or in tanks, this is on horseback, in eight years, he conquers you know, far regions all the way up to India. And uh, Alexander the Great, um, every time he would win a battle, he would have a party with his men and he would drink. And he wasn't drinking, you know, apple juice. We, 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 we heard Dwayne Levin. Who, who attended the Dwayne Levin seminar? <laughs> yeah, lots of good stuff there. Um, he was drinking what we're not supposed to drink, and what happened is he actually drunk himself to death. He died at a very young age. Some say 32, some say 33. He died. He, he, you know, he could conquer the world, but he couldn't conquer himself. Couldn't conquer himself. And so isn't it interesting that he died at the age 33? There's someone else that we know of in Scripture that died at the age 33, but he conquered sin, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen? <laughs> 
And this young, this young ruler conquering the world, but not able to conquer his own appetite and his own passions. And so he dies at a young age. His son, which was supposed to be the successor of the throne, was too young. And so um, what he said, they say that his last words on his deathbed were, well, may the strongest win. He had four generals, and oh, you bet. They fought, and they fought. And eventually, you know, uh, one two of them became stronger than the others. And, uh, but but it, it was all a broken empire, um, which really... Um, continued that way until there was another kingdom that came up, and that was none other than the kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire, and that we read about as we continue in our prophetic dream. Look at Daniel chapter 2 and verse 40. And, <clears throat> and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. These are the words of the young Hebrew Daniel as he's standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he said, you are the head of gold, but after you will come another kingdom, and then there will be a third kingdom of bronze. And then he talks about the fourth kingdom, and this is resembled in the prophetic image by the iron legs. And he's talking about this kingdom as a kingdom that will crush all other kingdoms. It will be a very harsh empire. You know, iron, when you think of iron, you know, it's strong. It's, it's um, yeah, look at this. Rome is resembled here because none other than, none other than the uh, Roman Empire was the, the one that followed um, uh, the Greek Empire. And it's interesting that the Roman Empire is many times referred to as the iron monarchy of Rome. Right? Have you heard that? The iron monarchy or the Roman Empire. Um, Rome reigned for a long time. It reigned from 168 B.C. till approximately 476 A.D. It's kind of hard to put a date on the fall of Rome because it didn't happen in one year or in one event. So this is just an approximate date here. Um, the Roman Empire basically crumbled to pieces um, as there was a lot going on within the empire and from without. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But what we're seeing here is a prophetic dream, an image made of different metals, representing different kingdoms, bringing us from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece and now to Rome. And Rome lasted for a long time. Now, what happened then, and here you, you, you find a, here's a picture of the extent of the Roman Empire all around the uh, Mediterranean Sea. Listen to this interesting quote by Edward Gibbon uh, in his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And obviously, Edward Gibbon has had a taste of the prophecy that you and I are studying tonight as we look at the language he's using here. He's talking about the fall of the Roman Empire. Listen to what he says. The images of gold, silver, and brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings, that's Daniel 2 language, were successively broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. So he's saying, yeah, Rome fulfilled that position of being the fourth kingdom. Okay? Now, Rome did not fall um, overnight. As a matter of fact, Rome um, crumbled to pieces because there was a lot going on. First of all, Rome was so large that they couldn't really police their borders anymore. And so there were different tribes from the north and from the east and from the south that were kind of invading and taking parts of Rome. 
of the Roman Empire. At the same time that there were attacks from without, there was corruption from within. And so once Caesar would get on the throne or get, in, you know, get, get into ruler, uh, become a ruler, but then he would be poisoned. And then someone else would come up that would be, you know, killed as well. And then there was a lot of intrigue, a lot of, um, a lot of unrest going on within the empire itself. And so the turmoil from within, the attacks from without, basically caused the Roman Empire to crumble to pieces. Now listen to what it says next. Now, now the prophecy gets really fascinating. So uh, if your seats have a seatbelt, you want to fasten them right now. This gets really cool. Now, we're, here we are. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. We're getting closer to where kind of, you know, we come into the picture or our world comes into the picture now. Listen to verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and the toes, so we're now here in the, in the very bottom of the image. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be, what's the word? Divided. So the prophecy predicts that the fourth kingdom would be divided, right? Now, we, we, we started in Babylon, there would come a second kingdom, would come a third kingdom, would come a fourth kingdom. Now, that's kind of like easy to predict, like, you know, there will come another kingdom, and then there's going to come another kingdom, and there's going to come another kingdom. But this is really what puts the signature on this prophecy. Because yes, you can say there comes a second kingdom, and a third one, and a fourth one, but if you predict that the division comes after the fourth, then that gets a little bit more detailed. Are you with me? So he says, okay, after the fourth kingdom, there's going to be a division. Now, let's take a look. What happened um, in approximately, again, 476, um, we find, you know, the, the Roman Empire at this time is really crumbling to pieces, uh, intrigue from within, attacks from without, and it indeed divided. And when you look at the West Roman Empire, it basically divided into 10 regions or 10 countries. And, and this is just a map of the division as we look at the West Roman Empire there. Um, and, of course, later these, these tribes um, formed the countries that we know in present-day Europe today, like the Franks became the French and so forth. Um, now, look at what it says next because it gives us even more detail as to what would happen after this division of the Fourth Empire or the um, nation, uh, the, Roman, uh, yeah, the Roman Empire. Uh, verse 43 as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. Okay, so fourth kingdom would be divided. But then in verse 43, it says they will try to mingle. And it's an interesting phrase that is used here. They will mingle with the seed of men, which points to intermarriage. It's the marriage, the mingling of seed. Now, this is interesting. When the Roman Empire fell and it was divided up into all these different nations, what we see in the history of what we would now today call Europe is that there was a lot of attempts to unite this empire again, this fallen, broken, divided Roman Empire. Many attempts to unite that empire. Now, this was many times done through war, through politics, but also through intermarriage. So you would have in one country, you would have a prince, and in another country, you would have a princess, and the two countries said, now let's go into an agreement. The prince will marry the princess so that we can have peace and so that we can unite this empire that has been divided. Now, that seemed to go well. At times, it went, you know, well for a couple of 
months, but not very long. As a matter of fact, every time it, it, it would cause even more division and, and the, the, the history of Europe is really just a history of wars and wars and wars and wars and wars. And there was no unity just like the prophecy predicted. Now, look at what it says, the second part of verse 43. This is just fascinating. It says, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. In other words, they're going to try to unite, they're going to divide, they're going to try to unite with the mingling of seeds, the intermarriage, but it's not going to last. This is exactly a picture of the history of the broken Roman Empire. And we could, of course, look at a sequence or we could look at a lot of different rulers and dictators and kings that have come up and that have tried to unite Europe. Charles V, you know, uh, Louis XIV, uh, of course Hitler, and all these different individuals in the course of history have tried to unite this empire, but every single one of them has failed to do that. And prophecy stands the test of time. Amen? It would be broken, they would try to unite, but it would not last. This is an interesting quote by uh, Adrian Hilton in his book, The Principality and Power of Europe. Listen to how he, puts, how he puts it, how he phrases this. It is impossible to understand the current drive for European integration without viewing it in the context of previous attempts. So he's looking at Europe today. Europe today is trying to unite. Uh, you've probably heard about the EU, the European Union. They're trying to unite these nations. What he is saying is, well, we cannot really understand this if we don't look at previous attempts. Listen to what he says. Since the fall of the Roman Empire, numerous attempts to rebuild a unified Europe have failed. The vision of one empire under one emperor belonging to one church under one God has caused more bloodshed than anything in the history of the world. Somehow Europe has seemed doomed to oscillate between war and peace, between power and ignominy, between order and chaos. So what he's saying is there have been many attempts, and those attempts to unite this fallen Roman Empire has been attempts to bring it under one emperor with one God or one religion. Now, uh, you might say, well, this is a prophecy that really talks a lot about, you know, um, um, the old continent. Here we are in the new continent, the United States of America. What does this have to do with us? Now, I want to just say one thing here. Um, I hope that you come on Sunday because on Sunday... We're going to look at a prophecy in the book of Revelation that talks about this country, the United States of America. There are prophecies about the old continent of Europe. There are prophecies about the United States. There are, there are prophecies about the global world in which we are living. The one that we're looking at tonight, yes, it has most of its focus on, on, on what we could call Europe, but we're going to see that has implications that definitely... Um, um, affect and speak to um, this global world in which we're all living. Uh, and this is interesting because um, in Europe, and I'm, I myself have spent a lot of years in, living in Europe, uh, there's, this, there's this pull, this draw to unite. Um, this is actually an interesting picture. This picture is actually a poster of the EEC, which is the European Economical Community. And uh, it is a picture, and I don't know if you can see this, but um, it is actually a representation of the building of a tower, which actually reminds us of a story in the Old Testament that you find in Genesis chapter 11. And that is the story of the building of the Tower of Babel. How many of you are familiar with that story? 
Now, you remember how, you know, this was shortly after the flood. God said, you know, um, I want you to uh, spread and multiply upon the face of the earth. And then yet there were people that came together and said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to build this tower and we're going to secure that if any flood will ever come again, we'll be safe and we'll just live the way we want to live. And in rebellion to the word of God, they built this tower, the Tower of Babel. It was led by an individual called Nimrod, which his name means we will rebel. So don't call your child Nimrod. We will rebel. And they're building this huge tower, which was to reach to heaven itself, they said. But what happened is, is God confuses the languages so they can no longer complete this project. And so they had to scatter, right? And that's why we have so many languages today. That's why in my short life, I'm 33 years old, and I, and I speak four languages. Uh, I was born in New Zealand, so I spoke English. Then I, my parents are Dutch, so I had to learn Dutch. I had to learn in school uh, German, and I married a Norwegian wife, so I speak Norwegian. Now, you know, even though... Even though you speak all these different languages, sometimes you get a little bit confused, right? Because it's hard to compartmentalize all these different languages. But can you imagine all these languages, suddenly they just can't finish this project. But the interesting thing is this. It was not God's will for them to build that tower. And yet what is happening today in the continent of Europe is that they want to all come together. And what is it about? It's about the same thing as back in Genesis chapter 11. It's about control. We're going to control... We're going to control the people, and we're going to do this by having one Europe under one, you know, ruler, one religion, one God, you know. This is what we're seeing, and Europe is only a model of what is happening in our world today. And we're going to discover that in the course of our studies on Bible prophecy. This is interesting. On this poster given out by the EEC, the European Economic Community, there's a little phrase here. It says, Europe, many tongues, one voice. Now, this is also interesting. This is a, a, a painting by Bruegel of the Tower of Babel, and this is actually the EU Parliament in Strasbourg. Now, tell me, do you find, do you see any likeness here? It almost looks like a tower not completed. Now, what is going on in our world today? There's a lot going on in our world today. This is interesting. The BBC News um, published this article um, a couple of years ago. Listen to what it says. In his first major speech on the UK's relationship with Europe, he, Foreign Secretary David Miliband, said the EU should be a role model for the world. It could be a model power of regional cooperation dedicated to free trade, the environment, and tackling extremism. Of course, we're seeing in our world today that there's this, there's this, this pull, this draw, this, this attempt to unite all the nations, right? Now, um, unity can, see, can be something very good, but unity can also be something that leads us away from the very purpose and will of God. It's very important. Unity can be important, but the, of course the question is, what, is, what are you united on, right? What is the unity built on? Unity in itself can be good, but you've got to ask the question, what is it built on? And of course, in the course of our time together and studies in Bible prophecy, we're going to find out how that we can have unity on the Word of God, but we're also going to find out that there is a world in which we live that is trying to unite on different kind of principles. And so it's very important for us to study these things together. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, he said, the man who trades freedom for security does not deserve, nor will he ever receive either. Right? A A lot of truth in that. 
Now, we're going to wrap this up. We have a couple of minutes left. I said we'll be finished by half past. I think we're going to actually make it. This is the last part of the prophecy, and this gets really interesting. So here we are basically living in the tip of the toes of the image. You and I, we don't live in Babylon. We don't live in Medo-Persia. We don't live in Greece. We don't live in Rome. We are living in a world that is divided, that is trying to unite. Now, yes, it's speaking about um, the continent of Europe, but it's really a model of what is going on in our world today. And so you and I, we could say, are living really in the tip of those toes. What's going to happen next? Listen to what it says, verse 45. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is what? Is sure. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, here we are in the end of time. Now what happens next? Verse 44 and 45 tells us. Take note. And in the days of these kings, in the days of, of them trying and attempting to unite this broken empire, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. God is going to set up a kingdom. What do you say? Amen. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And then he reviews a part of the dream that we've not yet covered here. But, you know, not only did the king dream of an image that was made of different metals, but also in his dream he saw a stone that hit the image on the feet and the whole uh, image crumbled to pieces. And Daniel now refers to that and he says, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. Now, what's going to happen? God is going to set up his kingdom. How is he going to do that? Well, in the dream, the stone hit the image on the feet and everything crumbled to pieces. When you look, you can just take a, you can do a very simple study. In the Bible, the rock or the stone, on many occasions, it points to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said that he was the cornerstone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, he says, and that rock was Christ. Christ, he says, my kingdom is like a rock. You need to build. Remember the, that, little, that little parable that Jesus gave? Don't build your house on the sand, but build your house on the rock. Remember that? And he himself is that rock. The rock is a picture of Christ's kingdom. You know, we're living in uncertain times, and we need to know where to build our lives. Don't build, upon the, don't build your lives upon the sands of uncertainty that are in our worlds because it's just not going to work once the storms of life hit you. But if you build your life on the rock, Jesus Christ, you can be secure and you can know that he will take control of your life. Amen? And so Christ is represented by the rock. And when Christ comes back the second time, all the kingdoms of this earth will pass away and they will make way for the one kingdom and the one king, which is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so what we see in this prophecy is a prediction that brings us all the way from ancient Babylon between five and 600 years before Christ through the corridors of time of history, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the breakup of Rome, the attempt to unite, but the, the, the utter failure to unite, and then ultimately the coming of the King of kings and Lord of lords, none other than Jesus Christ. He's the rock, and he will break the kingdoms of this world, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Amen? 
A kingdom that will never pass. This is a kingdom where there's no death. A kingdom where there's no suffering. A kingdom where there's no sin. A kingdom where there's no cancer and diabetes. A kingdom where there is no hatred and terrorism. A kingdom where there is certainty because it's founded upon the one that will always fulfill his promises, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen? And my friends, the good news tonight is that you can be part of that kingdom. And already today, you can decide to build your life upon the rock, Jesus Christ. Amen? And in the course of this seminar together, the series together, we're going to discover how, can we, how we can do just that. We're going to discover how we can build our lives on the rock Jesus Christ. We're living in uncertain times, there's no doubt about that. But in the midst of uncertainty, we can have certainty in Jesus. And I look forward to the rest of our presentations, the rest of our studies, as we're going to continue to journey in Bible prophecy, that we might know what is ahead of us and what is coming, and more important, how we can face those times with courage and confidence. Amen? So I hope that you will be able to join us for that. This evening we've looked at Bible prophecy. But you know what? There's one last thing, and that is the Word of God is going to have the power in your experience once you let it into your life. You know, there's one thing you can look at the theory of prophecy and say, oh, that's incredible that it was actually foretold, all the events of, of Christ's first coming and his second coming and, and all these different kingdoms. You can say that's incredible. But if it only remains a theory, then that's, gonna, that's, that's not really going to impact your life in a major way. But if you say the Word of God has the power to change my life, well, that is incredible. I'm going to let the power of prophecy, I'm going to let it into my heart and into my life and that it can actually so that I can navigate my life. I mean, if God can foretell the passing away of kingdoms and the coming of new ones, if God the Creator can uphold the worlds in their orbit and He names the stars, if God is sovereign over all things, then certainly He can guide your life. What do you say? And He wants to do just that. And so I pray that, 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 that in the course of our time together that, that you may also open your heart and say, yes, yes to the Holy Spirit, and yes to Christ, and that you may experience the power of prophecy in your personal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for being with us this evening. It's been a, it's been a great beginning of a series that we look forward to. I want to thank you for Bible prophecy, and I want to thank you for every single person that's come out this evening. And I pray that you'll bring us back tomorrow as we continue our journey together. And Lord, may we experience the power of your, world, of your word. Lord, there are, there are challenges that we face. We are living in an uncertain world. But thank you for the certainty of Scripture and the certainty of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that is waiting for us with outstretched arms. Thank you, Lord, that we can find comfort in him. And I pray that this comfort may be ours. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Let everyone say, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.